Well, many critics of Christianity, those who perhaps don't like, uh, you know, organized religion uh, and, and, and certainly Christianity among those, uh, those religions, they might say something like, I just can't get on board with uh, Christianity because it's just a long list of do's and don'ts, right? It's just regulations and rules to follow. Uh, and so maybe they reject the whole thing out of hand because it just seems to them like just this list of regulations. Maybe you've talked with somebody who feels that way. I certainly have before. What they mean, of course, is that the teachings of the faith strike them as restrictive, as imposing a code of moral behavior on them that they have no desire or ability to carry out. And if we're boiling down Christianity to its basic essence, like to what is Christianity all about, these critics could not be more wrong. Christianity is not, at its heart, a list of commands or prohibitions. Do this, don't do that. It's less about uh, do or don't and more about done. It's less about our obedience and more about Christ's obedience. It's less about us dying to our sin and more about Jesus dying for them. That's really what Christianity comes down to. The glorious gospel of grace that we believe, that we gather weekly to celebrate, that we labor to share with our friends and neighbors is that everything necessary to bring sinners back to God has been provided in Jesus Christ. That's the essence of Christian faith. It's not about what we do. It's about what Christ has already done and the effects of his work applied by faith. And yet, there's no denying that Christian teaching contains moral imperatives. Do this Don't do this. Commands and prohibitions. Do live this way. Don't live that way. And sometimes Christians who love the gospel and who celebrate grace have a hard time sorting those things out. And we begin to think maybe it's legalistic to expect one another to follow certain rules. So maybe when we come to commands in the Bible, we're not sure what to do with them because it feels like we're veering away from grace and toward legalism. As we've seen throughout this letter, the sequence is essential. We have to get the order of things right. Grace precedes law. New life in Christ comes before new man living. The verses we looked at last week in the middle of chapter 4 about putting on the new self or the new man. That's not something you do in order to get saved. It's something you do because Christ has already imparted to you his life. We're saved by grace through faith. That's Ephesians 2.8. Not by works. And then we walk in the good works that God prepared beforehand. That's Ephesians 2.10. We have to get that sequence correct. And if we understand the sequence, we've been made new in Jesus Christ by His grace. And now there are 
expectations for how we live. Now there are commands for how we live and don't live. Now there are good works that he wants us to walk in. Then we can approach commands and these these sort of exhortations in the New Testament in a way that doesn't equal legalism. In other words, we're earning our salvation by our obedience to these commands. That is false. That is legalism. But it's not legalism to obey God's commands. It's not legalism to, to say and insist there is moral obligation on the part of God's people to live according to his word. And that indeed is what is happening in the second half of the book of Ephesians. Really, if you th- I, I try to think about sermons in the sense of sort of explaining and applying. And if you look at the whole book of Ephesians, really the first three chapters is explanation. It's this is the gospel. This is what's true. This is what Christ has done. This is how Christ has united the, uh, the Jews and Gentiles as one people of God. And then chapters 4 through 6 is all the application. Because these things are true, here is how you are to live. And so these, these passages and these messages based on these passages can have the feeling of just the, this barrage of commands. And it can be a little bit dizzying. So I, I think I'm beginning with this sort of the, the framework of grace precedes law to make sure that in the barrage of moral instruction that comes in these verses that we don't begin to take on a burden that Christ does not intend for us to carry. Namely, this is how you are made right with God by obeying these commands. So we need to just be careful that we have grace as the foundation. We are made new in Christ by his grace through faith. And then on that basis, here is the path that he calls us to walk. So our passage today gives us one of those great lists of do's and don'ts. In Ephesians 4.25, Paul continues his exhortation to his Gentile Christian readers to cease living like unbelievers and to live instead in light of their new identity in Christ, their new man. So let's look at that passage together. We're in Ephesians chapter 4 beginning in verse 25. And I'm going to read all the way down through uh, chapter 5, verse 2. Just a little reminder that we believe the words of the Bible are inspired by the Holy Spirit, but we don't believe necessarily that the chapter and verse divisions are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes they get these things wrong. I think that what the unit of thought goes down through verse 2 of chapter 5. So in case you're like, wait, why are we starting chapter 5? I just think that the thought doesn't end at the end of chapter 4. So, chapter 4, verse 25, down through 5, 2. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you 
along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. May God bless his word. So therefore, in chapter, or excuse me, in verse 25, points back to the immediate context, the reality of the new man that he's been uh, exhorting us uh, to put on, put off the old man, put on the new man, right? Since you've put on this new man, namely your identity in Christ, we've spoken at some length earlier in the series about union with Christ, about how when we come to faith in Christ, he places us into him. We are united to Christ in such a way that what is his is ours and his resources become our resources. And so as we live out our new identity in Christ, we live in a new way, right? So that's what he's been talking about. And so I think that this sort of barrage of commands in uh, verse uh, in chapter 4, 25 and following uh, is sort of a description of new man living, right? Put off the old man, which belongs to your old nature, right? Your old way of life and put on the new man created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And then he sort of expresses, here's what that will look like in some ways. It's not exhaustive. He could probably keep going <laughs> with further commands and instructions. But he begins to express to us, here is what new man living will look like in the family of God. And I want you to notice that all of these commands are relational. They're all community-oriented commands. We tend to read the Bible very individualistically. The Bible says uh, here, don't lie. Okay, so that means I need to make sure that I don't tell lies, generally speaking. But this is community-related. All of these commands have to do with how we live with one another within the church, within the people of God. And so the new man life has a community shape transforming the way that we relate to and interact with the people of God. And so I think as we go through these verses, it'll be helpful for each of us to ask ourselves, does this sound like our church? And maybe even more pointedly and personally, does this sound like how I live in relation to my church? So this is how the Spirit of God may press these instructions down into our hearts, perhaps in different ways. So we get do's and don'ts. And really, we also get whys. Do's and don'ts and whys. In each case, uh, in each of these instructions, it's not enough just to stop bad behavior. Don't do this. We actually are uh, commanded to replace the negative behavior with a positive behavior, right? It's expected that we are contributing in positive ways. And... In each of them, almost every single one of these instructions, Paul also gives sort of a a reason, a motivation for that command. So there's kind of a three-part pattern that emerges, and we'll we'll see that as we go through each of these commands. There's don't do this, right, a negative command, followed by do this instead, a positive command, followed by a motivation because of this or 
uh, or in order that this might happen. So that's the pattern that he does. So let's go through these one at a time. Verse 25, don't lie to each other, speak the truth. Don't lie to each other, speak the truth, right? He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, there's a, there's a commitment on the front end of this. We are not going to deal in falsehoods. We are not going to be those who deal dishonestly or who speak untruths or who spread misinformation or who tell lies to each other. We've set aside, we've made a commitment to set aside falsehood. Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Don't lie, tell the truth. And notice the motivation that he gives. The negative command is put away falsehood. The positive command is speak the truth with his neighbor. Each one of you. That's individualized, but with a community focus. Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor because we are members one of another. He gives a community Reason, a community motivation for the command to stop lying and to tell the truth. For we are members one of another. And so he picks up the sort of the body language that he has used a few times back in chapter 4, verse 12. He spoke of uh, the pastors and leaders in the church equipping the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And then again in verse 16 where he said, when each part is working properly, the body makes itself grow so that it builds itself up in love, right? So he's taking up this metaphor of the church, the people of God as a body with different parts, different functions working together. And that's the reason he tells us not to lie. Body parts are designed to work together. For one another. There's a sense of united purpose. I always heard the old analogy uh, or illustration about if you're walking in across the hall and you stub your toe on something, that the rest of your body stops what it's doing to go and minister to the toe, right? Your mind is suddenly going, wow, that hurts. And you may collapse into a heap on the floor and your hands grab your toe. Wow, like your whole body is now working for the toe because that's where the the hurt is, right? And so the body works together for one another. And so when we lie to each other, we're actually working against each other. We're doing the opposite of what a body is supposed to do. When members of Christ's church don't tell the truth to one another, they spread falsehood, they're dishonest with each other, it's like the rest of the body goes, I don't care about that toe. You can stub yourself all day long. The body is working against itself instead of together the way it's supposed to. Dishonesty among Christians is dysfunction in Christ's body. That's what Paul is pointing us to here. In order for the body of Christ to function the way it's supposed to, to build itself up in love toward maturity in Christ, we have to be honest with each other. We have to tell the truth. What are some ways that we might be dishonest, might be tempted to lie to one another? Because you might think, I don't think I'm a liar. I don't think I lie. Like, why would I lie to people? But we might be dishonest with one another about our sin. I'm too embarrassed to sort of be seen in my weakness and so I'll just kind of cover that over 
How are you doing? How's that struggle going? Oh, I'm fine. It's all good. Right? Because I just don't really want to go there. It's too uncomfortable. So maybe we're, maybe we're, we're tempted to be dishonest with each other about our, our sins and weaknesses. Maybe we're dishonest with each other about hurt feelings. Uh, did, I, did I offend you? No, 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 no. We're fine. But really what's happening is there's already distance being created. I've already written you off in my mind. Right? We're, there's already brokenness here, but I don't want to deal with it. I just want to push it away. Are we okay? Yeah, yeah. We're fine. We're fine. It's all good. I've seen it. Maybe dishonest uh, in, in rumors. It could be even just as plain as, as sharing gossip about another person in the church just to somebody else. Maybe it's dishonest because what we're saying is flatly false and we know it. Maybe it's because we're not sure if it's true, but we want to talk about it anyway, which has the same effect, right? The bo- members of the body working against each other instead of for each other. So he urges us here, don't lie to one another. Speak the truth to one another because we are supposed to be working together to build one another up. Dishonesty among Christians is dysfunction in Christ's body. The second command is about anger. In verses 26 and 27, if I were to boil this down into a sort of a negative and a positive, it's something like this. Don't sin in your anger. Do feel and express righteous anger. I think that we can actually see a positive command here about anger. Which makes strike us a little bit funny. Because we usually think of anger as all bad. Anger is just a wrong emotion. Right? We should not feel angry. If we feel angry, we are in sin. And he doesn't say that. He not only it, it, uh, implies here that it's possible to be angry without sinning. Right? Because that's the actual command. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Okay, so it is possible to feel anger without being in sin. And maybe that's even farther than we usually go in our minds when it comes to, to anger. But he actually, it's expressed as a positive command. Do be angry and don't sin. So it, the, the negative is sort of like, in your anger, do not sin. And I think some translations even word it that way. In your anger, do not sin. But, the, but it really is spoken as an imperative. Be angry and don't sin. And the, so we need to see here that there's a difference between godly anger and ungodly anger. Or, or righteous anger and unrighteous anger. I've read a book uh, earlier this year that helped me in this way kind of make, make sense of these categories. And it asks questions like this. In, in your anger, ask this of yourself. Whose honor is at stake in the issue that's caused anger to rise up in your heart? Is it your honor or is it God's honor? What cause is being sort of violated or pushed against that's caused you to be angry? Is it a cause that's associated with your own sort of pride or or self-respect? Or is it a cause that's associated with God and his kingdom and righteousness? There are situations and times and moments where anger is the righteous response. When we look at injustice in our lives, in our communities, in our world, when we see those who are without a voice and without strength being put down and oppressed and harmed, we should feel angry. There's a sense of righteous anger that is good and godly. We know that God feels anger. And if it's sinful to be angry, then we'd be saying that God is in sin when he feels angry. And that's just simply not 
the case. So it is possible to be angry and not to sin. And we need to maybe develop a speed for that in our gear shift of life and emotions. We need to maybe allow some room to feel angry about things we should feel angry about. But also to recognize that many times the things we feel angry about are probably not really righteous causes. They're probably not really because God's honor is at stake. It's more because I got inconvenienced. It's more because, you know, I got disrespected. And so I think there's a propensity even here for self-deception. For us to be very lenient with ourselves. The scholar F.F. Bruce speaks of the subtle temptation to regard my anger as righteous indignation and other people's anger as sheer bad temper. Right? Just, he's just mad. Just because he has a bad attitude. But when I'm mad, no, it's, it's righteous. It's a holy anger. Right? So we need to be aware of our heart's inclination and tempta- tendency to sort of excuse ourselves and hold others accountable. So he tells us here, uh, in, in a word, keep short accounts. Deal with sin quickly. Where he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. I think he's speaking here about unresolved, unchecked anger. Because what happens to that? It festers. It, it, it changes. It, it grows into to bitterness and unforgiveness, which is just relational poison. Again, he's concerned about the community and new man living is a community project and has a community shape. And so when we're angry with each other and we don't resolve it, we don't deal with it well, we are essentially drinking poison and and, and damaging the community of God's people. Don't sin in your anger. So if we're to see that the negative command, the positive command, and the motivation, the reason behind it, it's something like this. Don't sin in your anger. Deal with your anger quickly. Because the devil may gain a foothold. So I do want you to see that that is a motivation that he gives, right? That the devil may gain a foothold if you don't deal with Your anger, verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, the devil is not spoken of here as the cause of our anger. He doesn't say the devil made you get mad. But what he does express is that our anger, if it's ungodly anger and it's unresolved and not dealt with well, becomes an opportunity that the devil will use. He loves to camp out in an angry heart. The devil loves to fan the flames of bitterness and unforgiveness because he knows it destroys community. He knows it drives wedges between the people of God that Christ died to unite. So don't give the devil an opportunity. Deal with sin quickly. There's an internet meme I saw floating around recently that says something like, you know, I've always heard, don't go to bed angry. But nobody ever told me, don't start an argument at 10.30 p.m. And I think there's some wisdom to that. Sometimes we find ourselves in situations, uh, you know, well, some people might, you know, certainly not me. Uh, Just kidding. Um, We might find ourselves in situations where it's like, man, we're at odds with each other here and the day should be over. And so now it's like, do we go to bed and deal with it tomorrow and just be angry for a while? Or do we 
deal with this and, and get right with each other before, uh, before we move on. And sometimes you have a very late night dealing with those things, right? That's just human nature, human life. But there's wisdom in keeping short accounts, in dealing with the anger while it's there instead of letting it silently fester and become something else. Don't give the devil an opportunity in your life because of unchecked, unresolved anger. The third command he gives us is in verse 28. Don't steal from others, but work for a living and actually be generous. There's a, there's a, maybe that's kind of the motivation behind it is so that you'll be able to be generous. So again, that pattern, don't steal, work hard. Why? Because then you'll be able to be generous with others. Now on the surface of this, there's a, it, it speaks to a principle, a biblical principle of work and reward. Right? The Proverbs are very clear about the importance of working, about being uh, diligent. Um, go to the ant, you sluggard. Right? We see the, the ant is laboring and building and, and working for his home and for his community. And so we should be more like that right? and less like the, the lazy person who doesn't do anything. Uh, Paul himself in 2 Thessalonians 3 verses 10-11 says, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. And then he speaks of those very people being uh, idle, not busy at work, but being busybodies. It's kind of a play on words there that he uses. So if you're not busy working, you're going to find trouble to get into, right? Ways to sort of be a nuisance or a pest or in other people's business in ways that maybe you shouldn't be and becoming a gossip and, and these sorts of things. And so there's just a basic principle that he's certainly expounding here. Anybody who wants to have a living, must be willing to work, right? Let him work. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. But there's a context here that's interesting, I think, where he, he's speaking to those among the people of God who may be tempted to steal. And, and the, the contrast with earning a living, I think, implies that the people who are stealing are probably poor. They're probably people who don't have enough. And so the way that they devise in their own minds to get their needs met is to steal from people. I'll steal food here. I'll steal money there. I'll steal whatever, something I can sell. We're st- people are stealing things in order to meet their own needs. And certainly that's not the way that God intends. And in fact, one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not steal, right? So we know very well God does not intend for us to steal from one another. And so I think in this context, the stealing would be done by those who are poor, poor because I think they're not working and thus the poor are exhorted to not only stop stealing he doesn't say let the thief stop stealing and then move on he says actually let him uh, labor let him work with his hands so that look at the motivation he may have something to share with the one in need There's an interesting sort of redemption in that situation he was the one who didn't have what he needed and was stealing Now he's saying, no, if you'll work and earn a living, then you'll actually have something that you can willingly give to the one who is in need. And so there's a a turning of the tables that he has in mind. I think it's really beautiful. So those who are inclined to take from one another, instead work for it, be diligent, and then uh, out of your resources that you've earned, be generous. Give to the one who is in need. Next command is in verse 29, and it has to do with how we speak. And this is so 
important and powerful. Let's read verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Once again, we have a very clear negative command, positive command, motivation. The negative command would be something like this. Don't use your speech to harm others. But instead, use your speech to build them up. Why? Because you can actually be a means of God's grace to others in your words. Your words can give grace to those who hear. What power is in our words may be familiar with the passage in James that speaks of the power of the tongue. Life and death are in the tongue, right? See how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Just the words that we speak have the power to build up or to destroy. It's amazing to think about. And how many words we speak or type I think our online speech should be subject to the very same principle. Are the things that we're saying and the things that we're putting on Facebook and writing in letters or emails or whatever other ways you tend to communicate with words, are our words building others up or are they tearing them down? He says, let no corrupting talk come from your mouth. That is talk that actually sort of eats away at the integrity of someone else. Your words can destroy and tear others down. But your words can be a means of grace to someone else. I don't know if we spend enough time thinking about how much God can use our words of building up to actually bless and strengthen and grow and mature another Christian. Because I think what he's, when he says there... Uh, only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. I don't think he just means that it'll sound nice to their ear. Oh, that sounded gracious. That was a nice thing to say. Or that we're like cutting each other slack, right? Giving grace means, okay, I'm not going to pick on you for something. I'm just going to let that thing go. I don't think that's what he means. He's, he means that our words to one another can actually bear the power of God to do spiritual good in someone else's life. We can be a means of God's grace in one another's lives if we'll use our words for that purpose and with that in mind. You have the power to be an instrument of God's equipping, sanctifying grace in how you speak. It's amazing. We should ask ourselves, am I using my words this way? Are my words inclined more or more likely to build somebody up, to encourage somebody, to strengthen somebody, to grant courage to them, to be a means of God's grace? Or are my words more likely to be a source of discouragement, of disappointment, of hurt even? How often do you think God works in another's life for their spiritual good through your words? Don't use your speech to harm others, but to build them up. 
Because you could be a means of God's grace to them. The command in verse 30 is the one that doesn't follow the pattern. It doesn't have the negative and the positive and the motivation. But it's very important. Look at verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It brings up there, of course, what we saw in chapter 1, verses 11, where he spoke of the, the inheritance that we have obtained in Christ. And then down in verse 13 of chapter 1, in him, in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So he's already spoken of the Holy Spirit as the the means by which we are sealed, as we are guaranteed, we are protected, preserved until the end, so that we'll obtain that inheritance that Christ has purchased for it. And so he calls, uh, he invokes here the Spirit of God who is the seal of our salvation, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And the command is simply this, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. I think maybe the most plain way to express what that means or, or the ways that we could grieve the Holy Spirit would be in the context here to do the opposite of what he's calling us to do. I think we grieve the Holy Spirit of God when we tell lies to each other and are dishonest to each other. We grieve the Holy Spirit when uh, we, we don't deal well with our anger. And we let our anger fester and become bitterness and unforgiveness for, uh, toward one another. We, we grieve the Spirit of God when we're inclined to steal from others, to take what's not ours, and, and, and even just to be stingy and not generous with each other. We grieve the Holy Spirit of God when we use our words to tear down His people instead of to build them up. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. I was at a pastor's gathering recently where uh, Dr. Kevin Smith, who's the executive director for, uh, for Maryland and Delaware Baptists, um, he, he was sharing some, some thoughts, uh, some things that were on his heart. And he said, uh, just looking at the sort of climate of life in the churches in our day, he said, you know, we have all of this zeal for, um, you know, preaching the gospel and and you know, making new disciples and, and baptizing people and all this. Like that's sort of the, the, the driving goal of Southern Baptists, right? Is like we should be uh, telling the gospel to people and seeing new conversions and baptizing people and all this. And he says, and yet our churches are rampant with division and, and anger and, and distortion and disunity. And so he said that our, that the, that our life together as, as churches, the unity in the church has what he called missiological implications. Namely, we can't expect the Spirit of God to empower our witness, to empower our preaching, to empower our evangelism if we are grieving him by the way that we live together. That was a really powerful exhortation. If we're serious about the Holy Spirit using us for his glory in the lives of others, we'd better be equally serious about guarding the unity of the church and making sure that we're doing everything we can to avoid grieving the Holy Spirit by the way that we live together. Let our lives together be something that the Holy Spirit would delight in and be glorified by and not grieved by. 
Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Could also be the sense there that the work that the Holy Spirit is working to do and attempting to do in the lives of his people may be thwarted in some measure by our working against him and tearing each other down. So if we're using our words not to build up but to tear down, we're actually, in a sense, frustrating the work of God in people. Paul says somewhere else in Romans 14, I think, don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food, right? So for arguments over things about conscience where you disagree with your, with your fellow Christian, don't tear him down in such a way that the work that God is doing in him is undone or, or belittled in some way. So we can actually, in the negative, we can actually be a, a, a tool really of the enemy to prevent the work of God in, some, in another Christian's life. Don't do that. That's the command plainly spoken, that Paul gives us. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Live in such a way that he would be empowered to work in your fellow brother or sister in Christ. The final one of these specific commands, it's really kind of a a lot of commands, even in in one. He gives us a list of negative uh, things that he wants us to get rid of. Don't be, verses 31 and 32, don't be hateful, vengeful, bitter, etc., but be kind and tender-hearted and forgiving. And then he gives a motivation. Just as God in Christ forgave you. So there again is that pattern. Don't be like this. Do be like this. Here's why. Because God forgave you. Look at those verses one more time. Verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice like we're wishing ill on one another or we're speaking ill of one another or we're having this this sort of unchecked unresolved anger festering in our hearts and becoming bitterness and and we're fighting that clamoring is fighting and, and and disagreeing and disunity with with one another don't let those things run in your hearts and in your community Fight against those things. And instead, be kind. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. We should have a softness of heart toward one another. We should be willing to uh, be patient with each other. Desiring the good of one another. Forgiving one another. Should we be surprised that forgiving love would be the cornerstone of Christians' relationships with one another? Forgiving love is at the heart of the gospel itself and the heart of God's redeeming actions toward us in Christ. So it should not surprise us that it should also be the mark, the central defining mark of Christians' relationships with each other. Forgiving love. Love one another. Be kind to one another. Forgive one another. As God in Christ forgave you. We should remember how much grace we've been shown through Christ and then be willing to bend that grace outward toward one another and be patient and forgiving and then verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 gives, I think, a little bit of an umbrella for all of these do's and don'ts and whys of the last several verses. And really, the umbrella is this. It's simply walk in love. Walk in love. 
He tells us in verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God. An interesting exhortation. Remember back in verse 24, where he was speaking of the, the new man that we're to put on. He said in verse 24 that this new man was created after the likeness of God. In true righteousness and holiness. So we saw last week how this new man is really something of a a restoring of the image of God. The imago Dei that is in each person. That by sin and rebellion against God has been muted and distorted in people. It's still there. But it's covered over with layers of sin and pride and rebellion. But now in Christ, this new life that we have, he's brushing the dust off. Of the image of God. And so we're beginning to resemble him more again in true righteousness and holiness. So when he tells us to be imitators of God as beloved children, he's he's calling us to live out this new identity, right? To, To grow into maturity in Christ. And as we do that, he says, we show ourselves to be children of our father. You know the phrase, like father, like son, right? Children tend to resemble their parents and maybe particularly sons, their, their fathers, right? The way that they're raised, the way that they're trained, the way that they're spoken to, the, those instincts and characteristics sort of follow them throughout their lives for good or ill, right? Um, like father, like son. And as he's telling us here to be imitators of God, it's like the likeness of God in us grows and we become more... Uh, we, we more closely resemble our Father as we imitate Him. Walking in love, chapter 2, uh, excuse me, verse 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us. Love is the banner over all of these actions and attitudes toward one another. Patience, forgiveness, grace-giving speech, truth-telling Hard work and generosity toward our neighbor. All of these are simply expressions of love. Which, as Paul tells us in Colossians 3.14, binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is the banner over all of these actions. Over all of our behaviors and attitudes toward one another that he calls us to. You know, Jesus said that the law and the prophets hang on the two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the whole kit and caboodle of the law of God. Love God, love neighbor. That's what it boils down to. He's basically saying that that all of the, the commands and instructions to God's people about how to live with one another are just love defined. This is what love looks like. This is what love means. And in the same way, I think in the context of this passage, if you want to know what does love look like in a church, read Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. That tells us what love looks like. It looks like truth-telling. It looks like patience and forgiveness and forbearance. It looks like generosity. It looks like Dealing with our anger and not letting it fester into bitterness. Walk in love. And if that's not a clear enough picture of love, 
just the description of life together that he gives us. Then he calls us to look at Jesus Christ himself, who loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus himself is the perfect example of love, the perfect expression of love. It means at my expense, for your benefit, to the glory of God. This is what Christ did. Christ took our weakness and brokenness upon himself. He bore our sins in his body on the cross to pay the penalty that we owed. So that through his death, we might be given fullness of life. At his expense. For our benefit. To the glory of God. Because when Christ was crucified, God's will was done. God's wrath was satisfied. And we're told in Philippians 2.11 that therefore, because of the humiliation that Christ endured on the cross, God has now exalted him to the highest place and given him the name above every name. That the, glo- the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what love looks like. And it is the love of Jesus Christ in his self-giving love, in the way that he gave himself on the cross to pay for our sins and rose from the dead to defeat death. It is indeed the very power that enables us to live in love toward one another. We must first come to him in faith, draw near to him, recognizing our sin and brokenness, And trusting in Jesus Christ alone, what he accomplished on the cross for our forgiveness and for our new life. And in that moment, in that transaction, his life becomes ours. And we have this new self, this new identity to put on and to live out with one another. So as we hear these verses and this This list, this barrage of instructions about how we're to live with one another. Rather than putting it on our shoulders as this burden to bear. This, I have to do this right or God won't accept me. Let's remember, Christ already bore all the guilt, all the shame, all the wrath of God against our sin in the cross. And now we're freed in the new man that he's given us to live this love out in our church with one another. Let's pray together.